I'm turning to Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. Hebrews chapter number 8. Hebrews chapter number 8. I want to look this morning at least read the first six verses. I'm starting today with intentions of moving through the first six verses, but not promising that we'll get through them. That is the intent. Hebrews 8, beginning there in verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. I want to draw you back to that expression there in verse 1. This is the sum. This is the sum. This is the totality of the matter. This is the answer. This is the completion. This is what we want you to understand. This is what we want you to get. We have such a high priest. We have. This is not a universal priesthood for every person to claim. This is a statement by those who are in Christ can say, we have this high priest. We have Christ, a perfect priest. Let me rephrase that. The perfect priest. Not one of a number of perfect priests, but the perfect priest. This chapter, chapter 8, is a continuation of what's already been covered in previous chapters. This is the continuing thoughts. Remember, we often make statements that Sometimes chapter divisions can distract us. They can change our mindset. They can, it's almost like turning the page in a book when you turn to a new chapter and now you're expecting a new plot twist, a new story, a new change. And yet this is a continuation. This is the sum, he says. This is the, this is the thought. This is what I want to bring you to. Remember, the primary subject of the previous chapter has been the priesthood of Christ. It's been how Christ's priesthood uh, was after the order of Melchizedek. The writer had demonstrated to us that Christ was to be this priest. He was to be not of the typical Levitical order, but of that order of Melchizedek. And as a consequence, he's now showing to us that this has involved some differences. This has involved some changes as to how the priesthood was to continue or how it was to be appointed. In respect to not only the permanency now of this perfect priest, 
but also of the influence of this priest. How should this priest, this high priest, influence our moral behavior? How should it change our thinking? How should it make us consider and think about Christ as our high priest? Now the writer continues in this chapter and shows that there is this change, if you will. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But in the introduction here, he states that the sum or the principal point of the whole matter under discussion is that the priesthood of Christ is very real and very permanent. It is not going to come to an end. It's not going to have an ending point where he's no longer that priest. Where he's no longer the high priest. The ones that we today as believers can say we have this high priest. Remember that most of what we see in the Levitical priesthood was meant to be a type or a picture of that which was to come. It was intentional that it was not to be the lasting, but it was to be temporary in a sense. But there was a reason why Christ himself was removed to heaven to perform the functions of the priesthood. It's a very powerful statement. We're going to talk about this if we get there. Verse 4 clearly declares that if he, Christ, were on earth, he should not be a priest. In other words, his priesthood was dependent upon his ascension into heaven. He couldn't be a priest here in the sense if he was here because there were priests that were offering gifts according to the law, which really is opening up an entire box of our thinking today. If he had been here, uh, he would not have been able to perform the offices of that priest because the responsibility of that was being conducted by the law of Moses that had been entrusted to those Levitical priests. But then there's the statement about Christ's ministry and this exalted ministry. You see in verse 6, Now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. This third assumption here or this third preview of what we're looking at here is that Christ had obtained this more exalted ministry than what the Jewish priest ever held because he was the mediator of what's referred to as a better covenant that related more to the heart of man than external observances. He's driving us to a place where the emphasis is now going to be on the heart of a man rather than the external observances. So the sum of what he is saying is very clear here. He is saying that the priesthood of Christ that the believers have, that we have a high priest who is set upon and set at the right hand of the Father. And in this chapter, Paul shows us if he is the writer or whoever the writer is. Sometimes you see aspects of Paul, how you could hear Paul saying it. Other times you read it and you say, I'm not so sure that's the way Paul would phrase it. But in this chapter, the writer shows that the priesthood of Christ is far superior to the priesthood of the line of Aaron or the Levitical line in that he ministers in a better place. He ministers from heaven. His priesthood is in heaven. And not only is his priesthood in a better place, but it has a better sacrifice. Remember, the sacrifice of the bloods and bulls and goats could never atone fully for the sins of the people, but his blood does fully atone for the sins of the people. His blood is a sacrifice, but there's also a better tabernacle. The tabernacle of his body. 
Remember, that tabernacle in the wilderness was illustrative. It was pointing to Christ in every aspect of that tabernacle. From the very entrance to every, every piece that was in that tabernacle, it was there to indicate this is typifying Christ. And yet, here we see that this great excellence is being mentioned. This excellent ministry. This exalted ministry. So let's deal with this really in a step-by-step basis. If this is the sum, if Christ is the sum, verses 1 and 2 make mention of the better place where Christ is ministering from. Of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have this high priest and his identity and his location is clear, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. The better place is heaven. This is the sum of what's been said. We have this high priest just as he's been described. He is Christ Jesus, this Christ who was crucified in our place, rose on the third day, ascended to the heavens, where he is factually seated at the right hand of the Father. Factually. Not hypothetically. Not hoping to be the right priest. Not hoping to atone. But actually have, has already atoned for the sin of his people and is now ascended and is actually at the right hand of the Father as our high priest that we can identify and claim him as our own. Notice that not only is he there, it specifies where and what he is doing. And it says that he is set or seated on the right hand of the throne. It is significant that he is seated. He sat down. It goes all the way back and reminds us all the way in the very first chapter of this study in Hebrews 1, verse 3, when it told us about Christ, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the, power of his, by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, indicating that the work is completed. There is nothing more to do. The high priest and the tabernacle always stood. They were never seated. Their work was never done. Christ is seated. He sat down at the right hand. And notice the writer makes mention, and this is beautiful language. He says he he sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty. I love that word majesty. I love that word majesty when it's reserved for he who who is majestic. It's an overused word. Majesty has to do with that which is of God. We might say, a view in creation, we may say how majestic 
are those mountains? How majestic are those, are the, is the ocean? How majestic is what we see? But really what we're saying, it's those things are not majestic. It is He who has created those things who is the majesty. It is, it is the, the work of His hands. He has sat seated on the right hand of the majesty, which shows that not only was His work done because He is seated, but it shows that His work was accepted because He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that mean? It means He is in the very presence of the Father. Hebrews 9.24 tells us that for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. which are the figures of the true. I think that's important. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that He should offer Himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must He often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Him Self. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty, showing his work has been accepted. And then Paul, in the book of Ephesians, makes an interesting observation about Christ being seated there and how that applies to us. If you'll turn over to Ephesians 2 and look at verses 4 through 7. Probably is not new to many of you. But it may be. It's one of those great mysteries that Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 2, which of course is that high pinnacle of God who is rich in mercy. You see in verse 5, but, or verse 4 rather, of Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Kind of this mystery that he's raised us up and made us sit together. Not a scholar of the original languages, but I will tell you that that word sit in the original is present tense. It's not past tense. It's not future tense. It is, it is as if you are already seated there. We're already seated with Christ Jesus. But notice, Paul did not leave off the reality that we are seated there in Christ Jesus. Without Christ, we're not seated there. If you go back to Hebrews, and again, look at this, continue to look at these verses here. The realities of what's happening here really are quite remarkable. This explanation of how we have this priest. And that this priest is described as a minister, verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. To minister for 
we know that his ministry is a ministry of intercession. But he's not ministering in the place, in the holy place that man made. He's not ministering in the tabernacle in the wilderness. But rather, he is ministering in the very presence of God. And it's described as he's a minister of the true tabernacle. The true tabernacle is his body. The true tabernacle is that which is contrasted with the tabernacle that was pitched in the wilderness. Now, he's not saying that that wasn't important and didn't matter. But he is saying that that tabernacle, what was going on in that tabernacle, was never meant to be the permanent solution to what man's greatest need was. Because you know, even if everything was done exactly right in that tabernacle in the wilderness, it still could not make a full, complete, permanent atonement for sin. It couldn't do it. All of the ceremony, all of things that were happening, done. Moses built that tabernacle according to the pattern which God said, build it this way. But then the writer of Hebrews says, he's a minister of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched. The Lord set out. If you'll notice what a minister does, a minister is one who ministers that which is of God. The priesthood that Christ has in heaven surpasses whatever the Levitical priests were doing. So where is the true tabernacle today? The true tabernacle is in heaven. It's in a better place. The true tabernacle is not at the back of our property here. There's not a tent set up back here where you're going to go through the ceremonies of what they were going through. But Christ is that true tabernacle. And He's ministering from a better place than the place that the Levitical priest could have done He's ministering from heaven. But not only is it a better place, verse 3 talks about that he offered a better sacrifice. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat to offer. You know, every high priest had to offer something to God. That priest could not go in there and not offer anything. He couldn't come in and say, I bring nothing. I have nothing. I have no animal to give. I have no sacrifice to give. In order, he had to have a sacrifice. You realize today that for Jesus Christ to appear in heaven with the Father, he had to present a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was his blood. The sacrifice was his blood. Now his seated there shows that his work is done and that has been accepted because he, is, he has remained there. What was the better sacrifice? His blood. The typical priest never came to the tabernacle without the proper sacrifices. Hebrews 9.7 gives us a little bit of insight into this. It says, But unto the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Verse 8 says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, which, was, which, 
made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Hebrews 9 is, all, is interpreting what we just read in Hebrews 8. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in want into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he, Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. I would say that better sacrifice did something that the other sacrifices could not do. They could never fully put away sin. They were offered over and over and over as long as the tabernacle stood. So as long as that tabernacle was pitched, as long as it was there, they were to be offered over and over again. But this better sacrifice now, if Christ is to appear before the majesty in the heavens as our great priest and our mediator, he must have had a blood sacrifice that was effectual. In other words, he had to bring that which would satisfy. What did he bring? His own blood. His own body. Paul writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5.17. Won't, won't read the whole passage here. But 1 Corinthians 5, not 1 Corinthians 5. Let's come back to that one. 5.7, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 5.7. Paul makes mention of the Passover. And he makes mention of the sacrifice here. Remember, the Passover always required a sacrifice. But Paul says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened, for even... Christ, our Passover, is sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Remember, Paul is identifying here to the church at Corinth that it is Christ who is that perfect sacrifice, that perfect blood, that perfect Passover. These are truths that are things that ought to be really deeply ingrained in us. These are things we cannot just simply gloss over and say, I've got this, I've got this. This was, this was so important that the writer of Hebrews spends chapters on the priesthood of Christ trying to get us to grasp it. You know, he didn't just make one offhanded comment and say, hey, Christ, your high priest is in heaven, and then move on to the next subject. 
We're well into two whole chapters where he's talked about nothing but the priesthood of Christ and how it was different than the Levitical priesthood. There must be some significance to this. And yet, he says, back in our text, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat to offer. For if, now he goes back to Christ, if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Immediately, we're brought to the fact and say, well, what do you mean? He's not qualified to be a priest? He's not, isn't he perfect? Isn't he sinless? Doesn't he have a right to be there? But notice that it clearly says that if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So not only was he this better tabernacle, but his very presence was different. Christ would not, if, his, if Christ was merely only earthly, if he was only in his humanity, he would not even be a priest, even for the simple reason that he was not of the tribe of Levi. He wouldn't qualify. He wouldn't qualify to be one of those priests because of that succession of those priests. If Christ had died, which he did, but remained on earth, his priesthood would be of absolutely no value. But rather, his priesthood has now and is perfected in heaven. What we mean by that is that when he died, he arose, he appeared in glory, that all those other sacrifices and those priesthoods have now ceased. Hebrews 10, verses 7 through 10 tells us this. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever, now watch this, them that are sanctified. He's, this is exclusive. Them, the we, the us, there's a very specific group in which the writer has in mind those who are blood-bought. Those who Christ is appearing in heaven before the Father. There is not a universal salvation. It is only through the blood of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice that man can have eternal life. He can't get it through the blood of bulls. He can't get it through the blood of goats. He can't get it through being a good person. He can't get it even if he could keep the entirety of the law. It would not earn him a spot in heaven. He can't do it. But it's only through Christ 
the true tabernacle. His body, which He now tabernacles among men. You want to see the glory of God, you see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. You see the glory of God in the sacrifice that Christ made. It is through Christ that God communes with us. It is through Christ that we have fellowship. It is through Christ that we look and we look to Him for forgiveness. We look to Him not only for forgiveness, but we look to Him for acceptance. The acceptance is based upon the blood that was offered. It's interesting to me that when the writer talks about the priests and he talks about the superior nature of who Christ is, he says there in verse 5, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. And this is back to the context of the priests that were offering gifts according to the law. They serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Even in the Old Testament, we see that there's a witness to the surpassing greatness of Christ who was to come. Christ is the substance Christ is the sum of the mysteries of the old. When we talk about sum and we talk about substance, we're talking about Christ who is the very summary of what has been declared. You realize today that within Christ Jesus, we have exactly the high priest that we need. Not close not just according to a pattern, but we actually have the high priest that we need not just for our redemption, but for our eternal salvation, for our perseverance, in spite of our depravity, in spite of our wickedness, in spite of the things we do wrong, because we have this high priest who is set down at the right hand of the Father, his work is done, his work has been accepted, That's why when you see wonderful phrases like Paul makes in other books, being accepted in the beloved, we're accepted based upon the perfect priest, the true tabernacle, Jesus. Now look, we could get into, we're going to get into some more of the technical technical concepts next week. But folks, I, I could not escape today the reality of what we who are in Christ have. And the beauty of being able to competently say, we have the perfect priest who's appearing in heaven for us and continues to appear for us and continues to keep me in the beloved even when I don't deserve to be in the beloved. Even when in myself I can claim no rights to Jesus Christ at all. I can claim no rights to God. But because he's ministering in a better place, heaven, and he's a better sacrifice, his own blood, I have hope today. Folks, we read from Ecclesiastes, I do not understand, and I don't know. It it burdens me more and more and more when I think about the vain pursuits of this world, 
trying to find it. And folks, you are surrounded by people who are desperately looking for something. They'll grab onto anything that's in front of them because they don't know Jesus Christ. And without Christ, this life, this life is completely vain. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't speak and preach against sin because we should, but I'm telling you what you see mankind getting itself involved in is a result of the depravity of man, no question, but it's also that pursuit of trying to find contentment and find happiness and find some source of joy. And it continues to leave them empty. When someone tells you who is without Christ, I am so empty, do you realize they're speaking the truth? They're speak- they are empty. They have nothing. Folks, I think sometimes, sometimes when we read verses and we hear sermons and we think about what's being said, sometimes I think God brings us to a place to remember specifically and personally what Jesus Christ took upon Himself to make this all possible. He took upon Himself human nature. He appeared on this earth. He gives himself as a sacrifice to God after living a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling the law, not doing away with the law, being the way the law is perfectly fulfilled. He does that for his people. He gives himself, gave himself as a sacrifice to God for the sins of his people. Do you realize what an affront and an abomination it would be to try to dare to approach God and to present anything before a holy God than Jesus Christ? You are talking about the epitome of blasphemy to try to approach a holy God with anything less than Christ. You see how our works you know, we, we get into these Christian cliches where we say, works can't save you. You're exactly right. But do you know why? Do you realize what an abomination it would be for you to try to offer your works apart from Christ? Now again, as Paul would say in Romans, this isn't a license to sin that because Christ perfectly fulfilled the law and I do whatever I want to do. No, we're going to learn about that now that law and that desire is now imprinted upon the hearts of us and we desire to do His will because we delight in His law. The law doesn't become a burden. It becomes something we want to live because now Christ who has fulfilled the law perfectly when we come in and through Christ, we're not just saying a theological concept. We are actually stating that for a, for a person to approach a holy God, they must depend wholly upon the merits and intercession of Jesus Christ alone. That is our only way of acceptance. And if you're seated here today, and you have trusted or you are trusting in anything else than Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice, it will leave you not only empty in this life, but it will leave you separated from Christ for all of eternity in a very real place called hell that is burning for eternity. 
This world likes to make hell a joke. It is not a joke. There is nothing funny about it. And there's not a person in this room should say, I hope so and so goes to that place. Nobody should wish that on anyone. If we had, about as, if we had as much passion about making sure the wicked get their just due, if we had as much passion about preaching Christ, make your passion preaching Christ, not about I hope they get what they got coming to them. Because remember, it's only by the grace of God you didn't get what you deserved. It's only by His grace. It's only by His patience and long-suffering. Not with anything that you've done. Why did He save a wretch like you? Why did He save a wretch like me if He has saved you? Keeps coming back to for His glory. He didn't save you to keep you from hell primarily. He saved you for His glory. He saved you for His purposes. Christ, as He came, we understand that the only way we can be accepted in the Beloved, everything that we do must be in and through Christ. I trust today that Christ is your only source of hope. And if it's not, I'm begging with you, I'm pleading with you as the Bible commands to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He will cast none who come unto him. He will cannot cast them off. He won't say, no, you can't come to me. Those who truly come to him, he will in no wise cast out. It will always be the responsibility of the hearer to respond to what they hear. God is sovereign, man is responsible. One of those great mysteries. You say no to Jesus Christ, it is you saying no to Jesus Christ. It is you saying no. It's you saying, I don't want this. It's you saying, I don't want any part of this. Yet if Christ, if Christ has saved you, and you know that today, I think we owe more praise than our lips can probably ever say. I keep thinking back to that study this morning in the Psalms and David said, my one subject, my mind is on this one thought as a believer that I will perpetually praise God in every trial and every struggle, whether it's a good time or a bad time, I'm going to praise God because of what he's done for me. I hope you can say this morning, as the writer of Hebrews said, this is the sum. We have such a high priest. I hope he's your priest today. We're going to save verse 6 for next week and we're going to include that in our message next week. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you this morning, we are most grateful for the knowledge that we have and the understanding. The Lord... My heart itself is just pricked. It's, it's touched with the realities of who I am in Christ. Who these dear people are in Christ, if they're in Christ. Who they are and what we can claim today. 
Father, in the busyness of this world, we sometimes lose sight of the, just the beauty of what this means. The beauty of knowing that Christ's sacrifice has been accepted and that we are in the beloved. We're accepted in the beloved. And Father, I'm burdened today. I'm burdened for those who have yet to repent and believe the gospel. We know salvation is of the Lord. We cannot force it. We cannot make it happen. But we plead and with you today that through the power of the Spirit, according to your perfect will, that hearts would be softened and eyes would be opened and ears would be unstopped. That people would look unto Jesus and be saved. Father, may today and every day of our life, may we have a zeal for preaching Christ. Father, may we have a burden for people. May we not easily just look at sinners who are on their way to hell and just simply be nonchalant and uncaring. But may we do all that we can, according to what you've told us, to to preach the gospel, even in every ordinary day conversation. May we take advantage of those opportunities. Father, we take great comfort in knowing that salvation is of the Lord and that we cannot do it. But we take comfort today in knowing that Christ is our high priest. And for that, we truly rejoice. Lord, I pray now that as we leave here in just a few moments, that we will leave here rejoicing and praising you for all that has been accomplished. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake, I pray. Amen.